Good morning. This actually is not the first time I've spoken to the Blue Ridge Bible Conference. I spoke, I think it was in either 1976 or 1977. <laughs> so it's with some uh, glee that I say, I'm back. <laughs> I'm going to read um, Isaiah 30, verses 18 through 22. And we will uh, then have a word of prayer and get right into our study. Isaiah chapter 30, beginning with verse 18. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore He exalts Himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for Him. For a people shall dwell in Zion in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. But your eyes shall see your teacher, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it, when you turn to the right, or when you turn to the left. Then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, be gone. Thus far, God's holy word. Let's pray. Dear Gracious Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to study the scriptures together and to learn more of you. Please teach us by your Holy Spirit and lead us in the way everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, what usually happens, especially in this hour, is we don't quite get through uh, everything that uh, we want to look at. So you have your outlines, and uh, what I'd like to do just to start is to take each point in the outline and just do a brief summary so that if we do come to the end and we're not quite through looking at uh, some of the details, at least we will have covered uh, all of the items. So the the first point on your outline is a definition of justice. And uh, interestingly, justice is defined in a whole lot of different ways when you're just pulling it out of the dictionary. Of course, we're primarily concerned with justice as it relates to the Lord, uh, the fact that it is an attribute of his. I would recommend to you a brief article by Tim Keller in a magazine called Relevant. And he asks the question, what is biblical justice? And it deals particularly with the two biblical words that are often associated with justice, mishpat, these are Old Testament words, mishpat, which is often translated judgment, and tzedakah, which is translated righteousness. And uh, that article would be very helpful. You can find it online. That's where I found it. Just to put Keller and Justice or something like that in, and and probably it'll lead you right to it. What is biblical justice? Now, for our own definitive purposes here, uh, let us say that uh, divine justice is conformity to 
the divine standard, conformity to God himself in who he is and how he behaves. Why is that important to me, to you? Because God, by who he is, and by the the practice of justice, is assessing everything, everybody. He's assessing you, he's assessing me. And he's uh, doing it by a certain standard. Another way we might define justice is that it is a perfectly accurate measure of a perfect object. A perfectly accurate measure of a perfect object. The perfect object then becomes the standard by which everything similar is measured. For example, a perfect square is the object, and then every length and angle is measured to be exactly the same. You have then a perfect square, or if you want to put it in 3D, a perfect cube. Every angle, every line is perfectly adjusted. A builder will sometimes use some sort of measuring device to justify, you see, whatever he's building, especially if it has to do with a, an edifice of some kind. The, uh, you want to get the angles just right and, and lay the measure just right and have the up and the down just in the right to position. Anything associated, therefore, with God's being is perfection and all else is measured by it. 1 John 1.5, for example, says that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. In other words, perfection of His being. Therefore, all God's actions and the results of those actions are perfect. Now, we'll come back to this, Lord willing, in a few minutes. The second point of the outline is justice in the character of God. God's justice has to do with who He is, but in terms of our looking at His character, it begs for a solution to His being satisfied with what is not perfect. His character is perfect. The Lord, this is Nahum 1.3, The Lord is slow to anger, great in power. The Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. Then what of us? What of our situation? If God is that perfect object, if it is in His character to only accept what is perfect, then what's the solution For we know that we are not perfect. The third point has to do with the law of God as the revelation of divine justice. I think most of you have heard of what are called the three uses of the law. The law is used to remind us that we are imperfect and have a search for a Savior Uh, The law is uh, our thanksgiving to God when we seek to follow it, having found that solution that we need. And then the law is uh, a wonderful thing for any civil society 
It enables people to live together and to work together. The three uses, the three uh, applications of the law, but the law is the revelation of divine justice, particularly in, in what we call the moral sphere, moral perfection. Uh, Psalm 19, uh, first verse 7, which I didn't write down, but it's a good one, says, The law of the Lord is perfect. Well, if God is perfect, then that law is the expression, the representation of His perfectness. And then uh, verse 9, the last part, The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And the uh, ESV even goes so far as to change that to the rules of the Lord. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And you have both of those words that I mentioned earlier, mishpat, which is judgment, and righteous, tzedakah. They are both in in that verse and remind us again that uh, whatever the Lord puts forth as being right, that is the perfect measure. That's what we have to go by. So we want to come back to that and, uh, and talk about the law as the revelation of divine justice. Point number four in your outline is history as unfolding divine justice. When you look at the world, when you look at all the peoples who've ever lived, all the governments and empires and happenings and wars and various things, what does it all boil down to? It all boils down to God's application of justice, God's requiring perfection and not finding it, then doing something about it. History, secular history as well as uh, biblical history, the unfolding of divine justice. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Then the fifth point uh, of the outline, making sense of the work of Christ. Uh, It is because of the justice of God, of the perfection of God, of His demand for perfection, of the need for a solution, that Christ came into the world. 1 John 4.10 Here in His love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, or that satisfaction, propitiation, satisfaction, that God requires. So it makes sense, you see, of the work of Christ. If you have no real concept of justice, of God's justice, then you wonder, well, why did Christ come? What is His purpose? came to satisfy justice. And then finally, uh, point number six in the outline, human justice as a reflection of divine justice. And go back to those three uses of the law again. The the third one, uh, having to do with civil society, having to do with uh, having a a world in which it's uh, possible to live at least with some degree of peace and pleasantness, Uh, This has to do with the fact that most laws, most concepts of what is right and wrong have to do with divine justice, with understanding it, perhaps not from the Scriptures directly, but certainly as it's written on the heart. Revelation 2, verse 14, For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves. 
Now, if that's at the, the end of the trail there, maybe we'll have uh, trouble getting to that, but we'll see if we can't come back to it. Okay, back to this definition of divine justice is conformity to the divine standard. Genesis uh, 1.31, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Just a reminder there that all God's actions and the results of those actions are perfect. Now, somebody is going to say, well, there's sin in the world. But as God made everything, when He made it, it was perfect. That He allowed sin to come in as part of His plan, and indeed part of His plan to, again, make everything perfect. But we'll get more into that. But uh, God saw everything that he had made. Behold, it was very good or perfect, if you will. Now, as for these imperfections that come about, we can only say that this is what he has allowed. And that even though from our point of view, and of course from his point of view, uh, they do not measure up to that perfection, still he wanted it this way, so that, it, that in the end, his perfection would be total, would be unchallengeable, would be uh, without anyone saying, well, it's only that way because you wouldn't let it be any other way. He allowed this for his own glory, and he allowed it so that by destroying imperfection through the expression of his wrath, he might have that perfection that really satisfies him and that he might restore perfection through his method, his plan of salvation. Now you see this in, in some of the requirements that are in the law. We're not at that particular point yet, but I think it's a good place to bring it up here. And that is that uh, God will not accept anything offered to him that has a blemish he will not uh, accept even people of a certain kind who are physically imperfect. The, the first thing is the lamb, of course. You can't bring to God under the old covenant a, a lamb that's blemished, a lamb that has anything wrong with it. God says, I won't take it, I won't accept it, I won't respond to, under that covenant means to your blemished animal that you bring to me. And then God says uh, there are certain people that if they're found to be physically deformed in a certain way, they can't be part of my people. And our reaction, of course, is to say, oh, how sad, how unfair that is. Well, let me say God is not unfair, and that's part of the fact that uh, the mercy of God is so marvelous. But He needs to illustrate for us His total commitment to perfection or justice, if you will. And we can trust anything or any person with any sort of deformity to him and know that he loves that person, that he's not just having it in for that person because of, of, of physical deformity, but rather that he wants to teach us how committed he is to it, how committed he is for everything to be just right. And then when he does make all things right, when all deformities are taken away and everything is the way it should be, we can praise Him with the greatest praise and lift up our hearts to Him in utter thanksgiving. 
Let me read Romans 9, verses 22 and 23. What if God, desiring to show His wrath, to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory? The verse tells us that in this plan of God, a plan which has in view perfect justice, everything lining up just right. God has some vessels prepared for destruction and some prepared beforehand for glory, but it's all within this plan so that when God is finished, that perfection will come forward. Now, although, as we've pointed out, imperfection can be found in the entire created order, Scripture mostly associates justice with the moral behavior of human beings. And we might throw in angels as well, for that matter. That God is concerned justly about the behavior of those beings that He has created to interact rationally with Himself, created as it were, at least in the case of human beings, in His own image. Justness is God's consistently acting in a perfect way and then His reacting against whatever is not consistent with His perfections. In dealing with His creation, therefore, the Lord justly rewards perfection and punishes imperfection. So that's kind of our definition. What are are we dealing with here? God's consistently rewarding justice, perfection, and punishing imperfection. All right, now looking at the uh, character of God and justice in the character of God. it, It is in His character not to tolerate anything that varies from that perfect standard. The corollary to that is that the Lord will never punish anything that is innocent, that does line up just right. He's consistent in that way also. The problem is, if you read Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3, the Lord looked down from heaven to see if there were any truly righteous people. And his conclusion was, they've all gone the wrong way. There's none righteous, not even one. Now God is holy, morally pure, and therefore He wants holiness. This is God's desire. What does God desire? He desires Holiness. How many times have I had as a pastor people come to me and say, God wants me to be happy? And the answer is no, God wants you to be holy. This is what God desires. God is wise. Obviously we're looking at some different attributes of God here, but folding them into the justice of God. God is wise and therefore He rejects foolishness. He rejects folly. God is zealous 
And therefore, he earnestly pursues holiness. God is informed. Here's this idea of what does God know? He knows everything in every way, as we heard. God is informed, and therefore nothing escapes His notice. And that being the case, then God is always assessing what He knows, processing the data, the information, with respect to justice. How does it measure up? Do the lines fall in place? Are the angles just right? God is protective. This is where you get the the phrase, God is jealous. But another way to say it is that God is protective of what? Of His holiness. God is protective and therefore does not let evil go unpunished. Just never does. God is patient and therefore He does not punish precipitously. But He weighs everything carefully. This is why we can say God is never unfair. And how often does the Bible speak of the Lord as long-suffering, patient? God said to, uh, to Abram, I'm going to send your descendants down into Egypt because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Meaning what? Meaning God is waiting. God is weighing. God is patient. God is fair and impartial. And therefore, He treats every creature exactly as He deserves to be treated. But you say, He's the one who decides what each one deserves. It's not uh, our place to say, God, we deserve this, or this social group deserves this, or this nation deserves deserves such and such. God decides. And in so deciding, He is fair and He is impartial. And then God is kind. And therefore, He seeks a solution. He seeks a salvific solution that does not undercut is justice. And, and herein is the rub, you see. How can God be just and also be the justifier? Which is exactly what Romans 3.26 is talking about when it said He is able to be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. The character of God to strongly follow after holiness, to be jealous for it, To want justice, perfection always leaves him with, from our point of view, a dilemma. How can he be just and still justify what is imperfect? Well, the answer, of course, is Christ, and that's another point. But the law, the commandments of God, the Torah, and other commandments which may follow under the Old Covenant, and even uh, be also amended under the new covenant. The law is the revelation of divine justice, moral perfection. By creating man in his own image, Genesis 1.27, God put forth the expectation that man would behave exactly as God behaves. Now when I say the expectation... 
It's not to say that God did not know that man was going to fall. He was not going to yield and sin. But the expectation of the situation as it was set forth was that man would obey God, that he would behave exactly as God behaves. Albeit, man being finite and inferior in terms of being, still the expectation of the situation is that men, man and woman, would live, act, speak, work in the same way that God does after that pattern. Now, you see, in order to facilitate this expectation that man would behave as God behaves, then God revealed His moral perfection through the law. Now, at first, the law was written where? On the heart. Adam and Eve had the law written upon their hearts, and so does everybody else. It's just that sin has come and obscured and corrupted and distorted and so forth. The law is written upon the heart. And Adam and Eve had that law in their hearts. And, uh, in fact, the woman spoke to the serpent there in the garden and said... You know, we may do this, but we may not do that. We can eat of any of the trees, but we can't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, God had spoken that. It was a, a verbal communication. But there was still within her that understanding that to do the one thing was wrong, to do the other thing was right. And then, following the fall, God graciously wrote down through Moses, first on the tablets of stone and then on uh, whatever kinds of paper and so forth were available. God wrote down the law that it might be intelligently and purposely kept. So the one of the greatest blessings for mankind is that God didn't leave man just to rely upon the law written upon the heart, but he gave the law in a book form, in a written form, that could be studied, that could be discussed, could be analyzed. And uh, in Judaism, one I th- a positive thing, I think, that can be put forth has to do with the fact that uh, men gather together often, and, and perhaps women too, for all I know, but they gather together and they talk about what does the law mean? Now, there, there was obviously some perversion of that and some adding and taking away and those things that the Lord condemned. But you see what the written law was able to do for people. It enabled them to get really to the character of God Himself, to know what the justice of God really was. Again, God now having put the law in the heart and then given the written word, God rigorously holds men to this standard. Rigorously holds people to this standard. Everything that is written in the law is designed to promote a life of compatibility with God or at least to leave one hoping for another way that life can be lived with God. But... The essential purpose of of the law is to say, here's what it means to walk with God. 
to live with God. And that is justice. And where there is any incompatibility, then divine justice takes over to remove that incompatibility. And that is how God practices justice. To remove all incompatibility, all imperfection. And note that the law consists not only of commands, you shall, you shall not, but it consists of penalties as well. Why penalties? Because God rigorously pursues His holiness, His perfection, His justice. That is how He practices justice, by applying those penalties. Sometimes indirectly through human government, through the church in in some instances. But God pursues the corrective process, the application of the penalties to get rid of everything that's incompatible. Now, as we look at the scripture, as we look at, at the history that's presented there, what do we find? We find that in applying this moral standard, God sees that all mankind is deficient. Nobody's lived up to the law. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Furthermore, we see that the breaking of the law is not an impersonal act. How many times have you heard somebody say, well, if it doesn't hurt anybody, what's wrong with it? Friends, you always hurt somebody because you always hurt God when you break His law. Somebody always hurts, seriously hurts. And that person has the power, the omnipotence, if you will, to correct what you have done, to punish, to remove, to reorder. God's response to lawbreaking is sometimes called vengeance. Why? Because vengeance is a personal thing. God is a God of vengeance because it's personal. And the law, therefore, is in part, at least, a promise to punish the lawbreaker. Now, number four is history as unfolding divine justice. All that simply means is that God is always enforcing His law. God is always applying the penalties. God's judgments are seen regularly in the earth. They begin with the expulsion from the Garden of Eden. Then He destroyed most of mankind with a flood. Then he punished the Egyptians for oppressing the Israelites and refusing to let them go. He struck Israel for unbelief and idolatry. He struck them for rejecting the Messiah. Secular history is really nothing more than plagues and wars, disasters, sorrows of all kinds. And just go out and pass the cemetery and you'll be reminded of the unfolding justice of God. Ezekiel 18.4, the soul that sins, it shall die. 
Now, for the most part, men are aware that they are under judgment, individually and collectively. Hebrews 2.15 talks about people being delivered who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Just knowing you're going to die gives you that understanding that you're doomed. The unfolding justice of God. Pagans have tried to, to fit this into their corruptive philosophies. For example, when Paul was bitten by the serpent on Malta, and the, the uh, native people of that island said, well, justice caught up with him. Kind of making justice somewhat impersonal, but they had a goddess of justice as well. But you, he must have been a murderer. He couldn't escape justice. You see, this is history. This is how things progress in history. Now, there is a, a redemptive history, of course. I'm not trying to say that doesn't exist, but just for most people... That's the way life is. And then uh, you, you make this eschatological point that uh, history is going to end with everybody being called to account before God. Revelation 20, 13. The sea gave up the dead which were in it. The death and Hades delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man according to their works. So that really... If, if people were, were thinking this through at any sense of this, they would look for that way of escape. Which brings us to the fifth point, and that is the work of Christ makes perfect sense when we come to, to that question again, how can God be just and the justifier of sinners? It's the Lord Jesus Christ who came into the world in order that the, the unjust might become just. 1 Peter 3.18 the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. Christ came into the world to satisfy divine justice, to be the propitiation for our sins, by personally satisfying the Lord who is offended and vengeful, by imputing righteousness that we don't have. Paul says, I need a righteousness from above. This makes sense of the work of Christ. If there's no justice, if there's no unfolding of this matter of God's punishing sin, all imperfection. The work of Christ leaves us guessing. God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. Yeah, but why? Because justice has to be satisfied. And when Jesus died on the cross, He satisfied justice. The penalty was paid. God's vengeance was poured out on Him. We receive the gift of Christ's perfect righteousness instead. Make sense of the work of Christ. Well, just to try to keep within our time here, human justice is a reflection of divine justice. The Gentiles don't have the law written, but it's on their hearts, and they know it's wrong to steal, and it's wrong to murder, and it's wrong to commit adultery, and it's wrong to lie. They, they know these things and they, they codify them. They put them into their laws. But it's because already they know from within certain things are right and certain things are wrong. They don't get it just exactly the way it should be. Nevertheless, most of the laws that are in the world today really come out of that context that God's perfection has been put on the heart 
and that men know that the only way that they can live successfully is by following what God has put and written and pursued and ultimately will see to its final case. But again, the the last result of it all through Christ's coming is that uh, all the evil and the wrongdoing will be put away and there will only be perfection and justice and righteousness through the Lord Jesus Christ. Nations that try to create justice without looking at the Word of God or just according to their own whims, they're going to fall into confusion. You can see it in many places in the world. But those who attend to the Word of God and more particularly those who look to Christ will not perish but have everlasting life. Our time is up and uh, we'll stop there. If you have any questions, we can talk about them subsequently. I'm done.